Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got a special guest, Marvin Ambrosius. So welcome onto the show, Marvin. Oh, thanks so much for having me, James. I really appreciate it, man. It's my absolute pleasure. Obviously, you're well known for being on Sky Sports and Sky's Fitting 5, but what a lot of people don't know about you, you is your history before you went into fitness. And obviously, you and I have kind of gone backwards and forwards because of our ambassador roles within Link Sport. And I'll go into that in a little bit of detail. Oh, we can t- talk about that, obviously, as we progress into the, to the episode. But obviously, a lot of people don't know you were, you were a former basketball player. So talk to us about that, that, those early days. Yeah, well, I was actually born into a life of basketball because my father played. So from the age of, since I can remember, I knew how to dribble a basketball. So I don't actually, I can't tell you the day I got taught how to dribble a basketball. I, I look at pictures of myself at five and I'm putting the ball between my legs and around my back at five. So it's kind of one of those things where I'd go to my dad's games, but I'd always be playing basketball on the sidelines. So it's kind of just an unconscious thing for me to be able to do. But over the years, um, my dad um, was still playing and he was teaching me how to play. Um, And about seven years old, that was when uh, my club, um, Brixton Top Cats, um, they started their first ever kids team, which was under 12s. And I was playing, we were going to training every Wednesday. And it just became synonymous with my life as a routine that every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you play basketball. Um, didn't know what it was going to be we had loads of NBA NCAA tapes at home so I was always watching it trying to mimic um, whoever I could whoever I could feel like I could be like um, to a lot of people they think it was Michael Jordan but to me it was a lot of other players that I was looking up at the time um, Larry Johnson was someone that I looked up to when I was younger and I'm watching it now and then I'm playing and then the years kind of sped up real quick because by the time I was like nine um, that was when I'd realized I wasn't just good at basketball. I was probably the best in the country at my age at that point. And that was only, that was only because um, it was by accident, I went into a basketball tournament with my dad to watch his team, Brixton Topcats, playing um, a residential tournament in Hackney. And it was in East London. And what happened was one of the teams, the East London Royals, um, coached by the great Humph Long, um, he basically only had six players. He knew I played basketball. So he, my, he said to my dad, um, do you mind if my son, um, if, do you mind? He said, do you mind if your son plays with us? He doesn't have to play in the games. We just need another player. Like, and, and my dad said, hey, you can play him if you want. You won't be disappointed. And funniest story ever, not only did we play this tournament, I end up averaging um, between seven to 10 points a game against 19 year olds. I'm nine years old. So when you put it, it's, it's crazy. But I look back at it now, I'm like, I'd, I'd love to see this on tape, but no one has it. No one had a video record, recorder. But we ended up playing Brixton Top Cats in the final. And my dad, such a it must, mixed emotions is not the word. Like, he's so proud. But at the same time, he's, he's like, we're about to lose because my son played for that other team. I literally, everything my dad taught me, I did in the game against my father. And he said, anybody who's right-handed, send them left. Kept on doing it. One of his players kept on, literally, the ball was coming off of his foot all the time. And because of that reason, I just kept playing. And um, I ended up shooting like two free throws at the end of the game with like a minute to go that put us up by two. And then I got subbed out and we won, we won the tournament. 
And that was when I was hooked. And from that point on, that was when I was on the England radar from growing up. So every year I was going to camps. Um, I went to my first basketball camp in, when I was 13 in America, um, to the five-star camp. Um, still whilst playing for Brixton, we were like the number one team in the country. Um, and then it was us against um, London Towers, East London Royals. It was like we were all rivals. And we kind of, um, at 14, um, at 13, actually, I tried out at Lillishaw um, for the England under-15s team. And I was the youngest player to make it in the tournament because you do an all-nations, as you know, an all-nations tournament. So it's not just, it's the best of London against the best of all parts of, of England to make the England squad. And at the time, you don't really, you don't give yourself a pat on the back because you're just a kid. But like now I look back at it and I'm going, okay, so... I was 13 and I was that good to be making an under 15s team, but at 13 in a two guard position, I wasn't very big. I was about five foot seven, but because I could shoot, I literally, I was probably, I'd say 75% from free from the three point line. Like, and that's not even exaggeration. Like people knew don't let, don't leave me open. Cause that was, that was my thing. But I had a lot of basketball smarts and fundamentals because my dad, and my coach, Jimmy Rogers, constantly was drilling fundamentals into me. But I also had a good read for the game. And then, like, go moving forward, like, passing through time, like, maybe a few years later, um, I got to about 16. And I was still playing for England um, under 18, under 19s now. So, like, at 16, I was playing for the under 19. So, I always was, like, uh, way ahead of my age group. But I had some pitfalls, um, which stopped me from playing. I had about three um ankle injuries fractures in my right ankle two in my left and i was constantly within a two-year period probably on crutches twice a year three times a year and having to recover all the time so and that happened for three years straight but not realizing what that was doing it was psychologically damaging my my road to success because what it was doing, you got to remember, being an adolescent, people don't realize your brain's already all over the place anyway um, about what you're going to do with your life. And people were telling me, oh, you can't play basketball anymore. What else can you do? And that was pretty much the a reoccurring theme of what are you going to do if you don't have basketball? So I still paid no mind to it. And when I got to around 17, I got I was playing the best level basketball um, I could ever think to date. Um, I was... In, in shape the best I was ever in shape I was fast I had my athleticism was better um, I played with the I was playing on the men's team from the age of 14 I played my first men's game when I was 14 in division two and and I just got used to playing against better players so I knew the only way to get better was to play against older players but by the time I got to 17 I was at a level where I was an older player according to basketball as you know people like Kobe Bryant went to the NBA when he was 17 so at 17, I was nowhere near that level. So I knew in my mind, I got a lot of work to do because I'm nowhere near the NBA standard. And that year, when I got to my best, hit my knee, cartilage popped from my knee, couldn't play for 10 months. And you know, as an athlete yourself, James, you know, you, we, we know the pains of trying to be one thing and, and something that you just, you're helpless to it. So I was helpless to that situation. And became really became down it really put me down but at the same time I'm, I'm quite an uplifting person so I try to look at the positives and think maybe my body needs a break I'll try something else so I started doing songwriting um, my sister convinced me to start writing songs with her and started singing 
really enjoying that process. It was a lot of fun going to studios all the time. And then lo and behold, 10 months down the line, got my operation on my knee, came back and came back better than ever. Like took me about three, four months to get back to where I was. Still meantime, still doing recording, recording music as well, finished studying. And um, I then went to America um, on to, to a school. I went to visit some schools because I wanted to go to high school to finish up my last year so I could then go to college and be recruited and scouted because I was scouted by two colleges in um, Buffalo, New York. One was called Kinesius, um, which was a division three school, actually, but they had a 20,000 seater stadium. Like their basketball program was out of this world. And that was from scouts that came to my games. And I just wanted to get to the point where I could go to school and get there. So I went to America, went to a few schools and there was some transcript problems to where none of the schools were allowing me to attend because there was something wrong with my transcripts. So I had to come back to the UK. And when I got back, I was too late to join any colleges, universities or any programs of education. So I had to get a job. So I ended up working a full-time job um, in JD Sports. So I was, I was working like four, I think I was working four days a week, nearly five days a week. And I was like taking days off here and there. And I was playing basketball still. But I had a chip on my shoulder because I thought I had leaving parties. I was gone. I, I thought I was never coming back. This, that was it, America. This was the goal. This is where I wanted to be. And then all of a sudden it's finished. So got back, had that chip on my shoulder, played the best basketball. But then it happened again. The ankle went. And when that ankle went, the trigger just went off and I just decided that this, I don't think this is for me anymore. And I literally turned my back on basketball. I have to say it like that because I look back at it and I, I'm, I'm a very all or nothing person. I can't, I can't be an athlete, but not do what athletes need to do to be the best. So I thought I'm not going to be one of those people that say, oh, I'm going to go to a scrimmage or I'll go play ball here and there. I'm like, no, if I'm playing ball, I'm playing ball. That's what I'm doing. And because that was taken away from me again, I just decided I can't give something loyalty that I'd given my whole life to at the time. Only 17. It's not a very long life, but it's long enough. It's all I know at the time. So I decided to just turn around and say, I'm not doing that anymore, but I'm going to help other people. Um, started coaching um, in High Barnet, High Barnet Bulldogs. Um, I was coaching them for about, I think it was one season, and they literally couldn't even do a layup, like to even touch it. They couldn't do the basic fundamentals, but I got them to the point where I got them to a semi-final. And to other people, when they lost, they felt really sad. But to me, I'm like, you guys had never even played before, but I got you to a point of being able to do all the principles of basketball I learned, I got them to a point of being able to compete against good teams by making good teams make mistakes and give them the fundamentals to make them make mistakes. So, and then after that year, I just said, that's it, I'm doing music full-time now. I loved, got my passion for music. I knew music couldn't let me down. And then I started doing, I signed a publishing contract in 1999. And then music became my full-time profession um probably for about six seven years that's that's all i did was music um wrote some good songs worked in a lot of places went to the us a lot went to europe a lot um and during that time it, it was great um basketball wasn't even thought it wasn't even it was an afterthought um but the crazy thing about that was i was playing basketball those years never caring about what i ate what my diet was like nothing 
But when I stopped playing basketball, I continued eating exactly the same. You pretty much know what happened. Everyone's got a different body type. And I say this all the time. My body type is whatever I do is how I look. So if I'm eating badly and I'm not working out, I put on about six stone in less than two years. And it wasn't that I was trying to put weight on. That's just what went on from me living a normal base life. But I went from all exercise to no exercise. And, and in 2007, music went a bit quiet. Um, I just decided to say, you know, I'm going to get a part-time job and do music as well. Did that. And then again, basketball was an afterthought. That's pretty much it for the basketball world. So how do you transition then from music to, to what you do now then? Well, that was quite a funny one because I still do music now. Um, I just, it's not, it's just not as prominent as I would advertise it, if that makes sense. It's actually part, it's part of my, I'd say it's part of my DNA of just something that I can, I can put it down and do it any day. Someone could call me and say, oh, I've got an idea for this song can you write and I can write it straight away because it's I did it for so many years it's just it's like basketball if someone said to me could you coach a game I could coach a game I wouldn't need to prep for it I just, I just know how to do it can you run a basketball session it's a transferable skill yeah I can do it it's just something you don't need to think about and that was what music was so I I just transitioned um from the basketball to music and music to fitness because in music again music became unloyal and you can see where I'm going is it, this is a trait of Marv. Like I've realized the moment something's not loyal to me and in my servings to it, I say goodbye to it. And that's what happened with music. I had to put it down for a bit and allow myself to just try and be normal for once, not be creative and just be someone that goes, you know what? I don't do anything on the side. I work for this company. I work in sales and marketing and that's it. And I tried to be that guy for a route. It took me about maybe two years. I was that guy. And then I got sucked back into music. And um, whilst I got sucked back into music, I found um, the gym. And the work gym, it was one of those, it was a tiny gym. It was like, it was probably the size of like a house, but it had everything in there that you needed to get things done. However, my only conditioning that I ever grew up with was basketball training. So I only know how to train in a high intense way. So I was training, but it was exhausting. It was off-putting. I was just like, this isn't working for me. I, I, I'm, I can't do what I used to do. So I started doing weights. So not only did I have weight on me, I started packing on muscle on top of the weight. So I ended up looking like a linebacker. And I was just like, this isn't the look I want. And people were saying, whoa, are you, are you playing sports? Are you playing American football? I was like, no, I'm just going to the gym. Not realizing that my body it likes it likes to lift weights and it builds muscle quite quickly but if you're eating badly two and two make four on that one it's going to get bigger so i just got bigger and bigger so i decided to stop doing weights um a trainer there said to me like what do you want to achieve and i said i oh, just want to lose weight um just maintain and he just he gave me four pointers and said do this 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 and this and if you're consistent you'll lose weight i did it and then i lost a little bit didn't lose too much and then i said you know what i'm going to sit down and i'm going to I'm going to write myself a program. I'm going to do something. And I kind of, and I found um, my own short workouts, but I found that through actually doing another workout, which was um, I started doing insanity. Remember insanity with Sean T? I started doing insanity. Now 
I started doing it during my lunch breaks because you could do 20 minutes or 30 or 40 minutes. So I just did that every day and it built up my fitness level to a point where I was fit, but I didn't lose any weight. I didn't lose any weight. I just got really fit. And I was thinking like, why am I not losing any weight? So I had to revisit and look at my nutrition. So I revisited my nutrition, cleaned that completely up. And then I said, and all of a sudden my lunch breaks got cut really short. So I had to make my own short workouts up. And that was basically essentially how my Fit in 5 brand was created. I said, I'm going to do quick spurts of 30 seconds, 10 exercises, and I'm going to do as many rounds as I can. And that was pretty much how that was born. And then my wife said to me, you should just do five minute workouts and call them Fit in 5. And I was like, oh my God, you're a genius. So it's essentially my wife that really came up with the name and, and like the concept. And I just kept it going. And then all of a sudden I was two stone lighter, three stone lighter, four stone lighter, five stone lighter. And the next thing you know, I'm a completely different dude. I'm back to what I looked like when I was 17. And everybody's like, oh my God, look at Marv now. But there's a whole people, that, a whole bunch of people that met me years prior that knew me as the size that I was again. So it was like the new people was like, you've lost all this weight. But the people that I've known for years were like, you look like what you look like when we knew you when we were younger. So it was like, but I was like, well, I'm still young. I'm only like 30. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, like, how is it I'm 30 and I'm looking like I'm 17, but then I shouldn't have been this big in the first place. And that was when I kind of started to create a following where people at work started coming to my lunch classes, but they weren't classes. It was just me in a room working out to my own music. But then people said, can I join in? And I was like, yeah, cool. I'm not a trainer, but yeah, join in. And they started joining in with me. And next thing you know, it became a thing. Let's all work out with Marvin at lunchtime. And next thing you know, five turned to 10, 10 turned to 15. And then it turned into the gym, the gym, the guy that was running the gym saying to me, I think we need, I think you might need to start teaching classes officially here. Do you want to do classes on your lunch break? And I went, yeah, that sounds pretty good. He says, well, you need to get a level two qualification to do that first. I went, oh, okay. So I was like, cool. One of my really good friends, um, he's actually a teacher. He runs level two, level three. Spoke to him and he was like, my courses are on these dates. Are you going to come? Went to it, did my level two, loved it. I learned everything that I, I, it was like all the experiments that I put my body through over years. I learned in, a, in, a, in like a six month span that would have been so less painful if I had that information, which is quite, quite funny how a lot of people don't source it. But just going on that course, taught me everything I should have known to not have to go yo-yo dieting, know the principles of exercise, how to make sure that I take care of my body, all those things. And did the course. And then I said, I found out there was an insanity instructor. You could become an instructor. And it was the first wave, like no one was an instructor yet. So I went on the first course to be an insanity instructor. So I was one of the first insanity instructors in the country. And I started teaching that on my lunch breaks. And it became, it was an addiction. I loved doing it. It wasn't about the money. It was just, I realized that I didn't love fitness. I loved motivating other people. And I loved, I loved other people be, getting successful. So I loved someone telling me, oh my God, I lost this much weight. Wow, like I've never felt better. And I was addicted to that. It, was, it became less about me, but more about other people. And then I, and that's when I found my calling. It was about, I think my calling was to make other people better and use the, use the flaws and pitfalls of my, my life in what I'd fell down and helped people get up quicker. 
So all those, all those diets and all those things I did, all the yo-yo in, trying to get weight up, lose weight. I was like, oh, I can actually stop people from going through this and I can get them straight to the, straight to the right road on the right track and become the best version of themselves. So if you had to compare, obviously, the motivate, and this is obviously a question I get posted uh, periodically as well, but I'll pose it to you instead, Marvin. If you had to compare the motivation or inspiration that sports allowed you to showcase your skills to other people versus what you do now, which do you think has an overall more of an impact? Obviously, I know the answer, but if you put it into your own words... Yeah, I would say that the transferable skills of, of being motivated to motivate others is definitely the one. Like, because you can't teach motivation. I've realized now, like, it's it's not. Some people become personal trainers, but they become personal trainers. It's it's a job spec, but they're not motivators. And that, to me, is that that's a sub- part of your job that you can't be taught like you can have the bells and whistles you could have a gym you could have the programs but can you get me out of my bed and get me in that gym and make me feel good about myself like there's a whole different parameter to it and that's where doing something to get something back but something bigger than just the result of fitness and you're right it definitely stemmed from the motivation from being an athlete and from being coached by great coaches why do you say motivation can't be learned? Because I've realized now I've met a lot of trainers and some people talk the motivation because they're using the spiel, if that makes sense. But there's an emotional attachment to motivation. When I'm telling somebody about you should do this because of this, this will work for you. I come back with an example of a personal experience. Now, if you've never been overweight, or you've never struggled with any part of a body image that's to do with your weight or training or, or any kind of ability or discipline, anything, you can't talk from the experience that I need for it to really cognitively understand from myself. And that's where I realized the power lied in my pitfalls being six stone heavier. You can see that it worked. You can see me getting a donut from a counter. You can see me having a slice of pizza. But the fact of the matter is you see me having it, but then you also see me saying, yeah, and I'm definitely going to be going to the gym after this, but this is just for today, not for the week. And teaching a lifestyle rather than a diet, because that's the problem. I'd been on diets for way too long. And obviously you and I were talking off air about you, you obviously going to, you're getting in up in the age i'm not far i'm only a few years behind myself <laughs> so I, I can relate to what you're talking about so you you're talking about obviously bringing in up and coming coaches as i'll put it because that's what it is yeah uh, and giving them a foothold within your brand and what i liked about what you were saying marvin was you want to not indoctrinate them into your brand and thus you work for me so i can be able to either go off and do something else or uh focus taking a backward step obviously we'll, we'll, we'll call the person to be unnamed we'll use harry potter's the, the yeah. movie to, 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 to but most people in britain will know what i'm talking about especially and especially yeah. uh the the professionals uh we're, 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 uh, industry that we work in they know exactly what i'm talking yeah. about but yeah. why did you take the stance to be able to give them a stepping stone and then obviously being able to uh, once they become 
well-known with Daniel Brown to kind of go off on their own. Well, one thing I'd learned about working for companies, like I'd worked for Sky TV for 10 years. And the one thing that I learned was about empowerment. Now, if I'm doing a great job, I've always said, you don't need a pay rise to be, to be, give, to be told you're having a, a doing, doing a great job. What you need is someone to tell you you're doing a great job. Really simple. And what you need to do is give them something as a tool or something like it could be anything, a reward badge. It could be an email and that person automatically gets uplifted and they move on. So I've basically indoctrinated that from the fact that I was like, wait a second, I'm building my brand. I've had so many no's. I've had more no's than yeses than all the meetings I've ever been to. And I'm prepared for the no's because they grow me. No's grow you. Yeses make you yeses ruin your life. If you get yeses from from day one, the, the day you get a no, you're pretty much in a bad. You're in the worst place ever. But if you've been told no most of the time, it means that when you get the yeses, it's a massive win. So I wanted to make sure that anybody that I was bringing into my brand, they had the understanding that this isn't about you working for me. This is about you building content that people know about you as a person and as a brand. I want that person to use their story, their philosophies to, to let people know that they can become the best version of themselves because they're great at what they do. Like my brand is just basically an umbrella to bring other people up because not, not everybody wants to help anybody. Unfortunately, people want to be the guy. Like there's, a, there's enough room for everyone to be the guy, the girl, the, the, to, to be anything. It's just about basically empowering others to do more and if somebody says to me, oh, my brand's going great now, I'm going to do it myself. I'm like, cool, how can I help you do that? Because we're all part of the same journey. We all want to be happy. And if, if you're not happy where you are, you have to move on from that. But and a happy employee is an employee for life. And is, and is that why you've kind of branched off into, what well, I mentioned at the, at the top of the show, of... Obviously, you and I are ambassadors for Linksport, as well as many uh, other athletes um, that they brought on board. Do you think that is, and I don't want to put words into your mouth as to why I got on boarded or involved, should I say? I'm not user business term, but I know what I meant by it. What was it that attracted you to to that to that 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 app and that organization? Um. The moment you said the words bringing communities together, I, I read everything because when, I, when somebody says that, I'm like, well, what's your meaning of that? And they said, no, helping people basically um, being a, held, held them, holding themselves accountable, but you're bringing other people in that wouldn't be able to do so. So you're, instead of having a workout buddy, you've now created a community within a community of workout buddies on a bigger scale. And I just thought that's genius. And I just thought this is the best way to get people moving, whether that's just taking steps, whether that's just giving someone a nudge to say, I'm about to do a workout now. I didn't feel like it, but you know what? I feel so much better for it. When you hear that, have you ever heard anybody tell you, oh, I just did a workout. I feel worse for it. And I shouldn't have done that. Very rare. Very rare. You'll hear athletes say that sometimes because they know that they're preparing for something and they needed to recover and they now know they're not going to recover properly for the next session. That's a different story. But in the general 
fitness world of going to the gym or going to a class, you never have a feeling of going, that was a bad idea because of the endorphin release you get and just how you feel. And that's one thing I always preach on what we're doing is it isn't necessarily the aesthetic. It's how it makes you feel after you exercise and during as well. So, um, yeah, the link sport, it just, I just thought to myself, like, why wouldn't I want to help people? Cause this is why we got into the business. It wasn't, I say to people, if you get into the business to become a millionaire and to be rich, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Automatically it's flawed. But if you're in this to make sure you can help other people, that was why I joined link sport. Cause that's exactly what they wanted to do was just help people. Well, and, and be it obviously, you, you'll speak to the founders occasionally, and so will I. And, and, and I'll bring him in. I give him a little shout out on on, on my on this episode because he was talking about, oh, I'm I'm feeling sore today. Yeah, but I still need to do my other's workout. <laughs> yeah, but you, you've still got the accountability. It's it's he's not in the room. I didn't say yeah. this to him because ultimately he wanted to do it. I'm sore, but I want to take part because of the reasons you said of the community aspect of it. And I guess yeah. he gets the buzz from doing it with other people. Uh, he exactly. was being, oh, I could cheat a little bit. I move the camera out of the way. I don't, you probably would pick up on something like that anyway. So oh, yeah. Answer. If you move it, oh, no, 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 no. Move the camera lower so I can see all of the movement. Put it on the floor. Um, exactly. Things like that. So I think it, 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 it brings a great all-around um thing that ultimately you know the, the the founders of the apps are willing to to get involved in into what they've created to ultimately you know dry run it and test it themselves to to experience to experience it um for the for the better of it and uh i think it's i think it was for me it was a no-brainer when they they approached me oh do you want to to get involved it was through another athlete it's like i'll, I'll hear i'll hear what you've got to say Obviously, COVID derailed what they originally wanted oh, yeah. to do with it, doing it in, in yeah. person. And ultimately, the restrictions would have probably put a limited on that as well, because, well, mm. if it's not in your household, you can't do it. So, yeah, I tried to arrange really a run. Uh, yeah, I tried to arrange a run once and um, I couldn't arrange the run because you weren't allowed to see more than two people at the time. But then then now it's changed to one. So it's kind of like that whole. But then they moved it to online and even then people are holding themselves accountable by knowing that it's available so and you just think to yourself if you start in behaviors in a right place when we are out of this pandemic just imagine how big the community is going to be then so it, so sometimes things happen for a reason obviously it's horrible that what's happening now but everything does happen for a reason and it's just what we do with that reason we just have to find it well, I think it's evolving and adapting to situations because you you, you raised a good point of if you are always told yes when you come come approached with what is competition in one sense and, and yeah. are told no, how do you react? And ultimately, uh, I did that as uh, as part of my TEDx talk of you know most people view competition and comparison but they blur the lines between what it is because mm. of ultimately the skill sets that are given to an athlete of you know going at each other for constantly to become better as athletes would put it but but from from the outside looking in they deem it as 
comparison because it's, it's com- oh, I'm I want to be just like so and so. Yeah. Yeah, but is that competition or is that comparison? Is it is it because that person has something that you want and you don't currently have? I'm blurring the lines with the example I'm using because it would depend. Yeah. It would determine where you look at it. But yeah. what I said in the TEDx talk is because of that. What you mentioned of being always told yes. In other words, you know, uh, if we have this culture of giving out trophies for just turning up, which is exactly yes in a different sense. Any competition that that individual faces in the future they fold because like, well, I'm used to being able to get my own way. Yeah. How do I, how do I see, whereas you're five years old, four or five years older than me, we come from a generation, you need to fight for what you you, you want. And pretty much your father and my my parents have probably taken on board what their their parents instilled with you. You've got to really, really fight for what you want. You've got to fight for it. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not a given. Nobody's going to, well, nobody, nobody, I think, and I'm passionate about this. Nobody has a right for anything. And I think, I think when people are willing to look at it as black and white as that is. Yeah. You are going to be successful because ultimately if you're, nobody is like Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan. And I wouldn't say you would want to be like that because uh, you need to be your own individual, but if you are as dedicated to that craft to do whatever it takes to get it to that level, and I'm going to outwork everybody else, you should, mm. in theory, reap the reward. There's no guarantee that will happen, but ultimately, that should <clears throat> occur, and then go from there. But I think because of that that blurriness between competition bad and emulating social what you know the beast that social media has become i want to be this next big thing next big artist next big uh i hate the word you know social influencer or the words that they use because like well yeah social influencer like what is dangerous the word in itself it's meaning you you are you are manipulating people's thoughts because of your opinion based on one thing or the other so when when you do you you speak to the kids of this generation oh i want to be this but why mm. and they can't answer yeah you. so it's like well they can't yeah you need to answer that question and then i can and then i obviously can i'll hear you out because you've got a reason as to what it could be finance get yourself in out of a financial predicament that your family has always been into which is ultimately uh the black narrative most of the mm. time of i want to get my family out of, of the ghetto and the yeah. only way to do it is through sport it's through uh, sport through entertainment that's just something that's we've been told and that's all we've growing up obviously we're similar age groups that's all we saw the success of um black men black women what we saw was through sport and entertainment so and, and, and luckily I grew up with a few people that were black and successful that weren't through those avenues. So that is like so, his funny story, like uh, kind of like re- related, but non-related. Like my mum was a HR officer in Liverpool, like, but 
I didn't even know this until literally a few days ago. My mum was responsible for getting the first ever black employees in a Marks and Spencers in Liverpool. Like, how nuts is it to even say that out loud? That in the generation of me being born, let's say, ten, maybe eight years later than that happening, she was responsible for black people being allowed to work in Marks and Spencers. Like, that's just ludicrous. But... The fact of the matter is, like you said, my mum, she got into a role where she couldn't, she never got help where she wanted. To, so she found a role where she could give help. And that's where it's funny. My dad is a social worker. Like he's, he's retired now. But he's a social worker and a coach. And I thought to myself, I don't do what my parents do. We, we did completely different jobs. Actually, no. We've all chosen roles. And even I've ended up doing a role where I've ended up helping people. And it's been the best thing I've ever done in regards to work because it doesn't feel like a job when all I'm getting told is I feel better about myself because of this and what you did. That That's not a job to me because you're helping people. It's the most rewarding thing that we can do. Well, it's opening doors and it's open and it's giving people opportunities that they might have never experienced. If I use uh, a conversation I had recent. I've had recently a messenger with somebody, and they've had weight issues. And ultimately, they said, "Oh, I've never. I've always felt like this." So I kind of questioned, "Well, has there been a time in your life where that hasn't been the case?" Mm. They've said, "No." So okay, we've got some work to do because you 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 haven't always been big or bigger or mm. or overweight, or however we want to to term it in a non derogative term because you weren't born like that yeah exactly so it's just that you have no recall of a good experience and, and i think because of uh that is probably a, a good majority of people it's yeah. i don't know or i can't picture that it's because inside there and this is where psyche comes into you know, psychology for you and i comes yeah. into, into, the, into the four it's because people haven't got a success, success story to be able exactly. to imagine back to or recall whereas you and i have got probably hundreds yeah and you're alone it's like okay yeah let me just go back into my, my data bank and recall yep. a happy moment of, of 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 adversity but i've overcome i've overcome it yeah and pretty much and, and it's and it's funny you go to the failure first sometimes like the adversity is from the failure to the success so never to the win and that's what i say i think that's one thing that athletes um always carry is the narrative that you've got to be a winner well actually most of the time you're losing yeah like and, and that's just how it is but then it's what you do with the loss you end up working harder on your on on when your craft on getting better or if you're in a team working harder as a team training better but with what we're doing now as individuals helping people individually i'm always trying to help someone to help someone else so whoever i've given a training a training system to or something to help them or my belief system and how you approach it mentally i'm not just telling them what i'm, I'm making them tell that to their family so i'm saying what you learn with me use this with everyone you know don't try and make them join your journey. Just let them know what you're doing because people will notice. And when they notice, it's your job to tell them. Like this, it's not a case of hiding great information because believe it or not, you know what it's like when you get successful in anything. A lot of people, 
they don't want to share how they got successful. And some people, there's actually a roadmap to it, but a lot of people don't want to like give you really the details. I've never been shy of telling someone, do you know what I did to do what I've done to get to now? How long have you got? Because it's going to take a while. Like, because, and that's what it is. It, it's going to take me a long time to tell you where it went wrong, where it went right, where it got better, and where I finally sat down and went, okay, this is it. I get it. Like, it's going now. I, I know how to do it. But ultimately, there's moments in it where I should have been celebrating success. But instead of celebrating it, what was I doing? I was like, no, it's not enough. I've got to, and that was the athlete mentality. It's not enough. I've got to do this. I got to do that. And, and like, that's a curse in itself because you're constantly striving for the next result. Whereas I think it was only the last probably two years, just pre-COVID, I went, you know what? My success is this. If I'm waking up happy and I'm waking up, that's my success because I know I'm driven. I've, I've I found my drive. So finding your drive is what's important. I think not having the drive and trying to create that is the, is the struggle, I think. I think that is the thing that people battle with is, is trying to find that motivation in themselves to be motivated. Whereas now, because I'm driven, I don't have to wake up feeling like, oh, there's something missing. I don't have anything missing because I'll be driven to do what would be missing because I'm doing it. So instead of talking about what I'm going to change, I just do it. I just, I don't see the point of talking about it. I'm like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just doing it. Sometimes I'll say to my wife, I'm like, she's like, what that thing you were talking about last week? I said, oh, I already started it because that's just how my brain works. I just have to, because I know action is the work that leads to the result. So that's what we do. And obviously we're coming to the good proportion of the, where I like to ask, you a nice difficult question now Marvin and I ask every guest Ooh. this if you had to sit down with any athlete dead or alive Ooh. for that matter who would that be and why wow that's a that's a tough do you know no one's ever asked me that question before that's a tough one um oh ah you've got me you know uh just trying to think it's tough obviously because I I literally crossed paths with Kobe when I was 15 um, at a basketball camp because it was an invitational basketball camp and everyone was saying, oh, there's Kobe Bryant. There's the best player in, like, in the country. He just came back from, from Europe. He's unbelievable. And like, I followed Kobe like his whole career and, and I always watched his life after when he stopped playing basketball. I felt he did more for the world in basketball and for female basketball than what he ever did when he played sports, which I found was unbelievable. So he actually, before he passed away, he was on my like number one list to meet because I wanted to pick his brain and have an understanding of like the mumba mentality of the winning mentality and like the, the being the person that's like relentless to find the success within what they're doing. Apparently he just was like, he was nuts with it. Like he just thought, and that's why they made all the funny commercials. So I guess it'd have to be Kobe Bryant. I think it'd have to be now. Like, cause even now I, I listen to some of his podcasts and I just, I pick, I pick the gems. Sometimes he says something and I'm like, that's exactly what I needed to hear today. Cause that's what I'm thinking. And it lets me know as well, when someone who you think is a genius 
has a thought process and then you feel that wow that is my thought process it, it allows me to realize that I'm in the right place space myself and then and yeah there's yeah it's Kobe Bryant so I, I ranted a bit there sorry Sorry, man. And my final question before we wrap, we wrap up the episode: If you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? I'm gonna get it. It's coming. <laughs> Working hard isn't a privilege; it's a rite of passage. So once again, Marvin, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hart. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think and execute not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete.